You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amgen Oncology, advancing oncology at the speed of life. On September 4th, the Washington Post brought together leading oncologists, innovative researchers, and cancer survivors for a live event in Boston, examining the latest developments in cancer treatment, prevention, and detection. According to the World Health Organization, 55% of patients with cancer at any stage experience significant pain, and managing that pain can be hard for doctors and patients. In this segment, speakers discuss the latest advancements in pain science, examine new and innovative pain therapies, and assess whether medical professionals are receiving adequate training in this area of medicine. Let's listen. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and we're talking about controlling cancer pain now with Dr. Mihir Kamdar of Massachusetts General Hospital and Dr. Robert Jason Young from Brigham and Women's Hospital. We want you to join our conversation. Please tweet your questions to us using the hashtag postlive. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Kamdar, pretend that I am five years old. Can you explain to me what causes cancer pain? Boy, that's a good question. That's why I don't do pediatrics. Um, but uh, Perfect. What causes cancer pain, about 75% of cancer pain uh, actually comes from tumor itself, pressing on sensitive structures or on nerves themselves. But what a lot of people don't realize is that another sort of 15 to 25% actually comes from the things that we're doing to actually treat the pain. I'm sorry, treat the cancer rather. So things like radiation side effects, chemotherapy side effects, post-surgical pain. And then pain just being a very common thing that we see in medicine, people who have cancer can also have non-cancer pain. So that's another important consideration. When we're seeing patients who have cancer and have pain, we need to sort of think broadly about what could be causing it so that we can have targeted and effective therapies to treat it. So when we're talking about the spe specifically the part of pain that's caused by the cancer itself, how, do, how have patients described that to you? What are the things you hear, Dr. Young? What, what are you hear? What do you hear from patients? So it's very similar to the pain that they feel from chronic and acute pain as well. So when we think about pain, we think about acute pain being in the first seven to 21 days, and then we have the chronic pain, which is non-cancer related, and then cancer related pain. So those are the kind of three buckets that we think about when we think about pain. Within the cancer pain bucket, the pain is often sensed in the same way. So it's, it can be aching, burning, gnawing, throbbing. It kind of depends on where the pain is coming from and what is causing that. And, and if it's related to the chemotherapy agents, for example, then it may be a little bit of a burning kind of uh, raw feeling that they, that they have. And the descriptions are, are analogous to the patients that we see with chronic non-cancer pain as well. Okay. And what types of cancer do you see patients complain the most about when it comes to pain? Is it, is it possible to I mean, I'm sure all cancer does lead to some pain, but are there any that are worse than others? That's a great question. And a lot of it actually depends on where the cancer is. And so the, the most common cancer pain syndrome we see is, is bone pain. And that's oftentimes from cancers that arise in other parts of the body, breast cancer, lung cancer, that, that go to the bones. But um, again, it really just depends on where the, the cancer is actually arising. And again, the pain can also be from the treatments that we're doing to try to target the cancer. So what it means is we have to take a very individual approach when we're seeing patients um, that are dealing with pain. And I'll just sort of add to Jason's comments when you asked about sort of how do patients characterize pain. 
You know, I think one thing to think about pain is that we sort of define it as a, as a sensory or emotional experience associated with tissue damage. But I think understanding that it is a, a sensory, emotional experience, and it's not just about the physical pain, it's all of the other layers of pain, whether it's spiritual, psychosocial, the anxiety that comes from just dealing with cancer in general, and then you add pain on top of that, that, that creates something that we refer to as total pain. And so what we try to do is, is think about how do we address each element of that pain experience that, that patients are you know, dealing with, not just the physical, but the emotional and psychosocial as well. I know many of us have been on the patient side of this, and I've heard a lot of complaints uh, and just people sort of making fun of this kind of one to 10 scale that you'll often get from a doctor and they'll say, where's your pain? Is it a two? Is it a five? And you're thinking, you know, can I imagine worse pain? Yes. Where, where do I rank this? Um, do you think that's an effective way of getting patients to describe their pain? Uh, are there better ways? And what are the challenges with that? Yeah, there are a lot of different ways that are validated and more objective to be able to quantify a patient's and qualify a patient's pain. We use the numeric rating scale or the FACES as a, almost a quick and dirty way just to get a, an assessment that we can compare to other patients. The more validated ways are looking at their functionality and also their quality of life and scores and impact that it's having on that patient. So pain is so multifactorial that we have to consider how, like Mahir um, said, the impact that it has on the patient's total body and total life. So you're saying that's more validated because if a patient says, hey, I'm not getting out of bed, that might be more telling than if they just give you a number. Exactly. Is that the idea? But, you know, I think we, we've seen patients who have broken arms and they have 2 out of 10 pain, and if I stub my toe, it's 20 out of 10 pain. And, and so we, we have to think, to, to Jason's point, we have to think more three-dimensionally about how pain impacts patients' lives in order to actually improve their quality of life. And so the question is oftentimes, okay, what is it the pain preventing you from doing that's important to you in your life? What are those things that give you meaning and value, and how do we make sure whatever we're doing to target the pain is allowing you to do those important things as you go through your cancer treatment? Right. Yeah, I, I see this with my own kids. They'll, you know, complain about a terrible stomach ache, but then they still want dessert. So you're like, really? Right. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, pain, of course, is a common experience for cancer patients. Um, and I read that one in three cancer patients don't receive medication appropriate for the intensity of their pain. And according to the World Health Organization, 25% of all cancer patients die with unrelieved pain. Uh, what are the consequences that you see for patients when their pain is not managed well? Yeah, so it can have a tremendous impact on their psyche and, and their physiology as well. So we see physiologic changes with uncontrolled pain. So when we're thinking about trying to control a patient dealing with cancer pain, it takes a village to help these kinds of patients. And so it's the mantra of pain management in general, but especially with cancer pain, is multidisciplinary, multimodal approaches. And so that village includes the surgeons, the oncologists, the radiation oncologists, the palliative care doctors, the psychologists, psychiatrists, and interventional pain physicians as well in trying to create their different modalities to help knock the pain down piece by piece. You know, what we oftentimes say is no one person can tend to the complex needs of patients dealing with cancer, and that's why we really work to partner together as an interdisciplinary team to try to address all those layers of suffering that can come with cancer pain. I've got a related question um, from Twitter. They ask, what kind of painful side effects do cancer patients live with after 
they enter remission? And what is the long-term plan for treating this kind of pain? And that's a fantastic question. As you heard earlier, we're in a new era of oncology where folks are, are, are living much longer and you know, we're seeing survival curves. We don't actually see the tail of it, which is wonderful uh, to see. Um, and, and what it means is that somewhere around 15 million people are in survivorship and up to 30 to 50% of them are dealing with pain. And so, you know, I, part of it is addressing, again, the specific cause of pain. So people that have neuropathy, as Jason was referring to, nerve pain from chemotherapy, which targets the cancer, but can get some of the bystanding cells, like our important nerve cells, so they can get burning pain in their feet. And when they're trying to get back to work and, and get back into um, the usual tracks of life when they're in survivorship, that can be really challenging. And so part of it is dealing, is trying to help folks get through treatment, but also making sure that we're helping them get into a place of survivorship where they can be, be functional and can do those important things that matter to them. So let's talk about types of pain management then. So um, we, of course, have, have a range from minor pain and then moving to opioids more when you get into moderate to severe pain. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the range and, and what type of management is used most common? Yeah, commonly? absolutely. So within that multidisciplinary, multimodal approach, within the specialties that deal with pharmacology or medications, we also enact a multimodal approach to the patients. So we throw different classes of medications, opioids being one of those options, but not typically a first or second line agent. We'll often do the anti-inflammatory medications such as the Motrin's and Tylenols. We'll do anticonvulsants to help with some of that nerve-related pain. Some of the antidepressants at low doses can help a lot with these nerve-related pains as well. And then we have a whole slew of local anesthetics and other adjuvants that we can use to try to piece by piece knock that patient's pain down to make them more functional and improve their quality of life. Opioids being one part of it, and it's a big piece that's getting a lot of attention. A lot of people treat it as a unimodal therapy and just escalate it beyond what is oftentimes um, standard of care for, uh, for some of these other patients. Um, with cancer pain, it's considered in a separate bucket. So if they're dealing with active cancer pain, separate from that question, then we have more leniency on trying to manage that patient's pain with opioids and with all the other medications as well. So we're willing to kind of escalate it beyond where we would with other patients that deal with just regular chronic pain. So you're absolutely right. The, the doctors have been getting blamed a lot recently for over-prescribing opioids. When you hear those criticisms, do you feel defensive or do you think, yeah, we should be criticized for that? What do you think about, you know, back in the 90s when this idea that pain should be, should be paid attention to and treated to, treated as well with other symptoms, um, was, it, was it too much? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I think that every doctor or nurse practitioner or nurse that I know that goes into to, to this field is there to try to help people. I think clearly if folks had a sense of the, the data that we know now, um, I think people would have, would have thought very differently, a lot more cautiously about applying. What happened was people applied the WHO stepladder that we heard about, where we use opioids for moderate severe cancer pain, where there's actually good data for that, uh, to chronic non-cancer pain. And what we saw was, was a bit of a, not even a bit, it was a catastrophe. And underlying that, now when we look at the data, we actually see that when we look at population studies, the data for using opioids for chronic non-cancer pain it's pretty flat after a couple months. It's not to say there aren't patients, select patients who are low risk, who do well with them, they've exhausted everything else. When we look at cancer 
for whatever reason, opioids seem to be much more effective. Um, and around 50% of patients with cancer-related pain will, will need to be on opioids to be able to, to manage their pain and be functional. So the question is, from the lessons that we've learned from the opioid epidemic, how do we make sure that we are caring for patients with cancer pain if they need opioids safely and effectively in, in a structured way um, while also maintaining access for, for those patients who really need it. And how do we find, you know, I think to me it's always about finding the, the risk and benefits and that balance, which isn't always easy to do, um, but I think we've, we've come a long way in that. What are some questions doctors should be asking themselves or their patients when they're trying to decide, is this a patient that really needs an opioid versus this patient maybe could try some other routes? So like Mihir was mentioning, it's a risk-benefit ratio that we have to weigh with every patient. And every patient's individual and their situation is different. And so as we individualize therapy and try to target therapy for that specific patient, we weigh the risks and benefits of how opioids would fit in the multimodal therapy regimen for that patient. But also, if the risks would outweigh the benefits, then we wouldn't necessarily consider it. And so we're constantly weighing what we think the benefit and risk is for that specific patient and their modality and what the specific reason for their pain is. Do you, I'm sorry. I was just going to add, you know, if we follow the WHO guidelines or, the, or the, the, the NCCN, the National Guidelines on Adult Cancer Pain, for patients that have moderate to severe cancer pain, we, that's when we start applying opioid therapy. But to Jason's point, we want to make sure that we've tried all the non-opioids as well, and then we continue to titrate those. The thing that I'll add, and maybe worth talking about later, is because it's relevant to, to what Jason and I do in our practice, is People have talked about adding a fourth step, which is a minimally invasive intervention step. So thinking about nerve blocks, being able to administer pain medications right to the spine where all the pain nerves coalesce and then get sent up to the brain. And so how do we think about and those? those would be approaches with less, less addictive, less side effect, fewer side effects. Exactly, exactly. Because even in patients who are low risk for opioids, they can cause a lot of side effects. And so if there's ways for us to control the pain using other means that allows them to be more alert, more functional, perhaps tolerate their cancer treatments better, then we ought to be thinking globally about how do we maximize all of these different tools in our armamentarium. Do you hear patients expressing more concern about taking opioids just because they've heard so much now about the crisis nationwide? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's on the top of a lot of people's minds in trying to reduce the risk of the opioids. And when we think about the interventions that we're able to perform on these patients to help reduce their pain, we think about single interventions and continuous interventions. So single interventions may be a nerve block or even an ablative nerve block where we put alcohol to kill some of those nerves that are causing some of that pain. Whereas the continuous ones may be with electricity that we're delivering to the spinal cord or the nerve roots, or even medications that we're delivering into the spinal fluid where the nerves are very sensitive and we can get by with tiny amounts of medication that have equal effect but less side effects. Where are we on those developments? Are those approaches that are available now to patients or growing in availability? Yeah, they're, they're fully approved for cancer pain patients. And when we look at the intrathecal pump literature, we see that a lot of the patients do extremely, extremely well and have reduced side effects as, as, a, as a benefit. Do you see colleagues, uh, your doctor colleagues, becoming more hesitant to prescribe opioids? I mean, do you feel like the pendulum has swung a little too much in the opposite direction where now, you know, I've read reports of, of, of cancer patients being made to feel stigmatized for asking for this kind of pain relief? Yeah, I think 
again, it's a balance. I think a lot of the interventions that have come into to, uh, play sort of on the legislative le level, on the regulatory levels, have actually been really helpful as it relates to, to the opioid epidemic as a whole. I think when we look specifically at cancer pain, again, we have to make sure, it, because there actually is data that patients will need these and, and actually can do well with them, which is different than sort of population studies of chronic non-cancer pain, we need to make sure that we maintain access for those patients. I'd also say there's, there's we talked about sort of different populations of cancer pain, those that have active cancer, those that are in survivorship. Another group that's particularly um, important to address are patients that uh, have substance use disorder or are in remission for substance use disorder and now get diagnosed with cancer and have severe pain. And that's where it, it becomes a really uh, bit of a tightrope in terms of how do we safely manage their pain effectively. And so we've tried to come up with uh, a team approach where we use uh, substance use disorder specialist, social work, psychiatry, psychology, palliative care, interventional pain clinicians to identify non-opioid means to control those folks' pain, because they're a particularly vulnerable population as well. That's really, I had never thought of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about marijuana um, use for chronic pain. Uh, Colorado, New York, and Illinois have now passed laws allowing doctors to prescribe marijuana for chronic pain. What are your thoughts on that? I'll let Jason take this one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I think the jury's still out. I think there is some signal where we have found benefit for patients dealing with chronic pain or cancer pain. I think we still haven't found that right ratio of how much of the different substances, the THC component or in the cannabidiol component, the CBD component. The challenges are that it's difficult to study because THC, the component in the marijuana that's psychoactive, is still schedule one, whereas CBD may be schedule five and easier to, to study. But the majority of the compounds that we have are a combination of them. So if we're looking to do a validated clinical study with the FDA approval, it requires a lot more rigor and having to go through more hoops to get the um, schedule one substance. Just, just to give folks a point of reference, a schedule one drug is, is the equivalent of studying something like heroin, which is you can imagine the, the security and regulatory elements of that. And so, you know, I think when it comes to medical marijuana, if we took a poll of the stream, half people would say, you know, it's, it's horrible, it's gonna be sort of the next gateway to the next opioid crisis. Everybody else would say, this is the best thing ever. It may spare us from needing opioids and running these risks. The truth is probably somewhere in between. I think that the, the bottom line is we just don't know because we don't have the studies. And I think what we need, to Jason's point, is to be able to deschedule that um, so it's easier for our scientists and clinicians to actually get the answers about what is the role of medical marijuana, THC, and cannabidiol in cancer pain, and in, and in pain and symptom management in general. Have you yourselves had any patients report success from using yeah, marijuana? absolutely. Medicine? I think anecdotally I've found a lot of success. We've done a review of the studies that use cannabidiol specifically, or a heavier weight of cannabidiol versus the THC component. And that's shown some anti-inflammatory and some pain relief um, effects and a lot of the patients I've found have also reduced their opioid requirements uh, while, while using marijuana, medical marijuana. It's an area of research just in, in cancer treatment itself. What is, are there effects from cannabinoids actually on cancer itself? So I think that's, that's gonna be interesting to sort of see how that plays out. When we actually look at opioids, there's actually lab models with concern that opioids can actually affect, if we move away from just the, the opioid use disorder piece, that they actually can affect um, the immune system function, which is really important for immunosurveillance and targeting cancer cells. We don't know what that means clinically, uh, but again, I think 
the point being, the more we can think about multimodal approaches for cancer pain, probably the better off that we are. Yeah. Um, and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask was, do you feel like medical professionals are receiving adequate training in pain management? I know I've read a lot of just anecdotes from cancer patients who felt as though they were receiving good treatment in a lot of ways, but not having adequate management of their pain. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really important conundrum that we have. I can tell you when I was in training, which uh, doesn't feel that long ago, but was, was a fair bit of time ago, uh, we, we had essentially no training on pain management, and yet, um, we, we're called to treat it so often, and I think one of the stressors that clinicians feel is they feel ill-prepared to actually manage pain effectively and safely. And so I think that's, that's getting better. What I will say is one of the challenges that we have if we look just across our country is that we currently have a shortage of, of oncologists, of uh, palliative care specialists, of um, pain physicians that are, that are certified in pain management. For example, there's only about five to 6,000 of the latter two categories, palliative care specialists and pain management specialists. And we're in an era now, we're sort of on, on the bottom of an S-shaped curve with the aging of our population. The incidence of cancer is already increasing. Um, we expect that if we just look at palliative need, care needs alone, those are gonna double over the next 25 years to around 80 to 90 million people. And, and those needs aren't gonna be met with specialists alone. And what it means is that we need to, to make sure that all of our clinicians are able to manage at least first-line symptom management. And I think also thinking about new and model strategies to extend the reach of symptom management, whether that's through digital health and smartphone app technology or AI, I think we're gonna to have to really think broadly about new models of care to address those needs. And I think we're seeing the paradigm shift where pain is becoming more of the focus on people's training. And when we say the multidisciplinary approach, a lot of the different disciplines have a focus on pain management as well. Some of the reluctance that people may feel from their typical treatment algorithms may have been related to the opioid piece of it, but that's just one component of pain management, so one modality. Well, I'd love to chat longer, but that's all the time we have right now. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jason Young and Dr. Mahir Kamdar for joining me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.